in the morning. When you want the news, you need the front page every hour on the press box. Nothing's writing on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. And now, the news. The Mavericks beat the Jazz 126-118, and the Mavericks have a 2-1 series lead with Luka Doncic playing zero minutes. Game three was in Utah. I feel like this is pretty embarrassing. For yeah, the for the Jazz. Jazz usually pretty good at home, and to lose like that without Luka, who will be back for game four. That's the uh, red-hot prediction this morning. Isn't isn't is that a prediction? I thought that was already reported. That's why I'm predicting it. Oh, okay. <laughs> sources have said sources have said that he's going to be back for game breaking. Four. Break oh yeah. Breaking Luka Doncic will be back. That's my red hot take. Like they're exclusive. I, I guess Luka might not be a hundred percent coming back, but they're they're gonna win the series, right? Like this is not gonna be a problem. They get Luka back and they're already up two one. Jalen Brunson keeps playing this way. Right, I made see, fun of him, see and the, now um, he's going for 30 every game. Did you see the injury? Was it? I watched it over and over and over. Did the guy really elbow him that hard? He he intentionally ran. Royce O'Neal intentionally ran through the back of Jalen Brunson on a rebound in a much like a a much more aggressive manner than really anybody's ever had trying to just get an offensive rebound. Like it was very much a, a pretty dirty play uh Brunson came back in I'd have to guess it was just more of a I don't know a, a bruise of some sort just a more of a shock of yes pain from the actual hit as opposed to a significant injury because he came back in and, and played fine but it was definitely like eh, there was some some uh there was pretty much a cheap shot basically from Royce O'Neal to just run through the back of Jalen Brunson okay all right. I wanted your opinion on that uh, in terms of the the level of dirtiness to it. What did you see out there, and why did it? Why was it so hard Next for you question. to get involved? According to Adrian Wojnarowski, Chris Middleton, the MCL sprain in his left knee will be reevaluated in two weeks. Two weeks, he'll be reevaluated, not back, but reevaluated, which would mean he is out for the He's first out for round. a long time. Yeah. And probably more. Uh, Milwaukee screwed uh, on this now. Well, who do they get in the next round? I, I, why Boston? do I think they just can with with Giannis? They can still beat the Bulls. And like I said the other day, is um, DeRozan going to keep going for forty one? Um, I think they'll beat the Bulls. I'm trying to think who they have. They were the Boston. second seed. Oh, yeah. they could be they'll in trouble Boston. there. Yeah, they could I, be in trouble there. I think they're losing in if they don't have Chris oh, Middleton for the entire the series. No, no, no. They're, they'll beat the Bulls. I oh, think they're losing to Boston. Yes, if they, yes. They don't have Middleton. They're they're they might not. Yes. Might not get to six, right? Like I mean, Boston's legitimately good. Yes. So, I think this is a this injury probably maybe the most significant. I guess Devin Booker still is out there, but I still think the Suns got they've got the better shot to keep going uh, with Devin Booker injured and hope he gets back in time for the Western Conference Finals. But this is, I mean. Probably the most significant injury as far as who's going to come or who's going to play in the NBA Finals because Milwaukee was the East favorite. Now, if they don't have him against Boston, it's Boston, Miami, maybe Philadelphia. Like you, you can start making an argument for Philadelphia to have a shot to come out of the East and play for an NBA championship. You don't believe in my pick with Brooklyn? You They're think, that, you think that's over? I mean, you think it's over? 
I think they're one of the four best teams in the East, but they're they're down 2-0. They got to go they got to go 4 and 1 to beat Boston and not get eliminated. So that seems like it's going to be pretty hard to do. I can't are you proud of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're proud of yourself. Yeah, Fox backs me completely. Wow. And to be Tuesday. honest, to be Tuesday. honest. No, 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 that's enough. That's enough. Next question, please. Isaiah Cottrell will visit UNLV. He is a West Virginia transfer, played a year with Jordan McCabe, but two seasons in West Virginia, 4.2 points per game, 16 minutes last season. Uh, the Bart Torvik uh, points above replacement stat, just 0.2 last year. Evan Maya has him as the 256th best transfer uh, in the transfer portal. Uh, like everybody else UNLV has gotten, he's projected to be a better defender than offensive player and... He went to Bishop Gorman, uh, so came out of Las Vegas for high school, went to West Virginia, and now could be coming back. Um, Another this, defender. Yeah, I mean, this this fits in. He's not quite as good as, say, Elijah Harkless or any of the guys they've gotten at the top end of the transfer portal, but it's it fits in very well with pretty much every other player they've gotten where it's like, yep, that guy's probably going to be good defensively, might not give you anything on the offensive end. Man, this is a this is a... <laughs> tradition here with Kevin and these players they are they are really trying to buckle up defensively and score 60 points a game they did get Jackie the first transfer they got was Jackie Johnson who is an offense first guard out of Duquesne that's a guy that, that's going to shoot when he's on the floor when he's got the ball but since then every transfer they've gotten and pretty much every player they've been connected to or, or visiting like is is the case with Isaiah Cottrell it's all defense. It's guys that are defense first, and you're like, have they ever scored a point in a basketball game? Four? Okay, cool. Like it is. It's kind of incredible how how far to one end they've gone with the defense first players. That it seriously, it makes you look around and say, well, they they might be awesome on that end, but I do not know who's scoring right. for them. I I do not know how well that offense is going to look. It's, even if Donovan Williams comes back, I, I'm not convinced by any means Donovan Williams can be your best offensive player and go to the NCAA tournament even if you only give up 52 points a game I mean they they played pretty average as far as tempo goes last year they maybe could play faster but the way the roster's constructed they're definitely trending towards their best case scenario is going to be to play slow next year mm -hmm. not fast step back one legged what kind of shot is that have you ever shot that shot do you work on that shot Chet Holmgren <laughs> is headed to the NBA draft. Seven-footer from Gonzaga. Would you draft Chet Holmgren first overall in the NBA draft? Oh, man. Can he gain weight? Is it I possible? assume so. Is it possible to him gain weight? I, I might. You know who I really like is the Paulo Banchero kid from Duke. I, I, I thought he was really, really good in the, in the, in the tournament. Um, you have others who might fit that spot. I think Holmgren's going number one overall, but I might take the Banchero guy. Uh, he's 195 pounds, um, uh, seven foot, 195 pounds for Ted Holmgren. Um, I guess he's too big to pass on, but he could really get beat around up there. So I think the, the, the obvious answer is as a college player like Paolo Banchero, and there's some other guys you can, you can put in there too were better than Chet Holmgren this past season. And I think there's a legitimate argument to make that next year in the NBA, Banchero and probably a handful of other rookies are going to be better than Chet Holmgren. The problem, though, is Chet Holmgren is seven feet tall. 
He shot 39% from three last year and is a competent dribbler. He's not like a great dribbler, but he's a competent dribbler as a seven-footer. The potential upside of a seven-footer that shoots close to 40% from three and can actually dribble a little bit is so high that you almost have to take him because he might be one of the five best players in the NBA at some point because of the height and because of the shooting. Paolo Banchero is probably better next year. I, I don't really doubt that, to be completely honest with you. But the upside on Chet Holmgren is so high because of his size and ability to shoot that I, I think you almost have to take him because of what he could be two or three years down the line. Like you said, when he puts on some weight, but what he could be is so good, you almost have to take. Yeah, him. he's. I mean, if he hits, then what? He's going to be incredible, right? Yeah. But if he doesn't, then you might look back and say, "Oh, whether right. it's Banchero or someone else, oh, we should have picked them." So. I get it. I mean, I get why he's going to be the number one pick, and, you know, good for him. Uh, seems, you know, covered him in the WCC tournament. Seems like a good team player. Seems like a good kid. But, I mean, he better hit. You know, and if he does, like you said, if he does with all those skills, he'll be really, really good. I'd phrase it this way. I think there's a better chance that Banchero is a future all-star in the NBA, but I think there's a better chance that Chet Holmgren is the top three player in the NBA at some point in the future. Uh, you know, I can't tell you that. The Titans don't plan to trade A.J. Brown. Their general manager, John Robinson, came out and said, I don't foresee that happening. So are they paying him? Well, what's the other choice? I don't know. <laughs> letting, I mean, him, letting him hold out? <laughs> I mean, they, they really let A.J. Brown hold out? I think the, you said the other day that they have to pay him. So the interesting part when you have teams, because we've heard it with Arizona and Kyler Murray too, the interesting part when teams come out and they say, we're not trading a guy who's in some form of a holdout, some form of a, hey, I want more money situation. I get that there's like negotiations that have to go on and there's certain details of a contract you've got to agree to. But when you come out and say, I'm not trading a guy who's holding out for more money, the follow-up question should just always be, why haven't you signed him? Then? Right. Like, right. if you're not trading him, what what do you mean? Okay, well, have you signed him yet? Why not? It's like, it just, I, again, the negotiation happens, but, like, you should have already signed him by now. If you're not trading him, then what are you waiting for? Next question. Kentucky's Oscar Sheboy is returning to college, and this is uh, this is where name, image, and likeness, this is... This is maybe the most fun example I've seen of it. Jeff Goodman tweeted out, according to a source, that Oscar Shibwe will likely earn $2 million through name, image, and likeness contracts next season. So this was Player of the Year at Wooden Kentucky. Award winner. He won every, he won every yeah. Player of the Year award. Would have been first-round pick in the NBA. He's coming back to college, and he's going to get paid $2 million to do so. There's a... listen. $2 million from a college ultimately is nothing based on what you're going to earn over the lifetime of an NBA career. But for one season, there's a legitimate chance some college teams can compete with that first year of the NBA with guys leaving after one year if they can find an NIL deal for yeah. $2 million plus. Like if you, I mean, not I, some, not, not, a, not a ton. That's a right. lot of money. We're talk, counting on one, maybe two hands right. is all we're doing here. At the most. But that is, I mean, in all seriousness, that's $2 million? That is that is obviously enough money to make a guy consider, well, 
but go to the NBA right now. I'll start making money there too, but I can come back to college, make $2 million. And get better. Wife. Yeah. Like the only, the only real downside is you got to go to class, I guess, but well. you probably doesn't have to go to that hard of classes or they're online, whatever. But like, that's a legitimate, Hey, I don't have to go to the NBA to get paid situation, which is fun. Cause you, I mean, it, not that you, I don't know how easily UNLV could do this, but let's just say UNLV landed a great recruit one year and that guy had an awesome season and was projected to be a top 10 pick. There's a scenario where UNLV could keep that guy for another year if they could find an NIL deals that would pay him $2 million. He might say, okay, I'll come back to UNLV. That was a lot of fun. Let's do it again. Yeah. And I get 2 million bucks. Like there's an avenue for teams to keep their superstars now. I don't know if UNLV's net one or two hands, no, which is unfair because that's going to be power five schools with huge, huge boosters and huge, huge money. But you could lose, you could lose on average one or two kids a year if they get this kind of money. I don't know yeah. if you'd lose a lot of them because most of them want to get to the NBA and right. if their first round picks are like, hey, I'm going to the league. But right. you could, you could maybe lose a guy for a year. I also read the other day that they're not really sure how he's going to translate, and he might even as you know as good as he was, he won every national player of the year award that he might have to go back and work on some things. And by the way, if you get to work on some things and get $2 million, it's a pretty yes. good deal. Yes. I that, mean, you're not going that, back to work on things for $25. You get right, $2 million. Completely changes the argument. Because yeah. before it's like, yeah, okay, you need to work on stuff. But okay, do I want to work on stuff for scholarship or do I want to work on for stuff $2 million. paid? Now it's, I'm going to get paid $2 million. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah I'll, yeah. I'll work on a jump shot for $2 million. You guys got it. No problem whatsoever. Coming up next. We'll jump into the Raiders and take a look at their unlucky drafting history. I think when you look at voting for all NBA, when you look at voting for defensive player of the year, most improved player, MVP, ultimately these things are voted on by the media, which I think is absolutely disgusting because these are human beings that could have personal issues against guys because that does happen. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Greeny and Tyler Bischoff. Ed, you now a big Draymond Green fan? Am I a big Draymond Green fan? He's with you. No media voting for uh, all-NBA team. Well, good for him. I'm a big Draymond Green fan. I was a big Draymond Green fan before I heard that. <laughs> The the only problem with his argument there that the, he says the media shouldn't vote on it because some media might just not like a player. Uh, are players immune from just not liking yeah, I their mean, opponents? Like that's that doesn't change for the players. It's going to be subjective no matter who votes on it, and you're always going to have guys who don't like guys because players aren't going to like players, and media's not going to like right. players. I just think I'd rather guys who do it every day, who watch film, who play against these guys, you have a better chance of maybe getting it right than media does who cover one team who maybe watches guys on television or sees them when the team they cover plays them. Um, I think the players have a better idea of who should get the awards. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's there's going to be guys who don't like others and are, you know, are against them. But I would just that's, I just take media out of it because they're just not there on a day-to-day basis and they're not, you know, in the world of it. So, in the NFL, we had a fun story from Paul Gutierrez with a – uh, fairly depressing stat for the Raiders since uh, post Al Davis era is what we're looking at here. 2012 and on the Raiders have had 68 draft picks that they could have signed to a second contract. They have only signed six of those 68 to a second contract. And Colton Miller is the first round pick 
that they have signed to a second contract in that span. The others, non-first rounders, Derek Carr, Gabe Jackson, Max Crosby just got one, Brandon Parker, and Justin Ellis. Uh, in that time frame, only the New York Giants have signed fewer draft picks. Now, the Raiders have drafted a few other players that were good enough to get second contracts, but they traded them away, like Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper. So they have made some other good picks. But for the most part, they have done a horrible job of drafting to the point where they don't want any of those players back. And Um, we'll see how McDaniels and Ziggler do because if they're bad drafters, it might be the same thing, right? It's all based on you've had, they've had just horrible, horrible drafts in the past. And the other, the other part of this equation, not just that they've been bad at drafting, but because they've generally been bad most seasons uh, since 2012 and even before 2012, they have had a lot of turnover. So you often have, like we're seeing this offseason, you often have a new general manager, a new head coach making decisions on guys they didn't draft. So like this offseason, uh, Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler, they're making the decision on whether they're going to pick up the fifth-year option right. on Josh Jacobs, Cullen Furl, and Jonathan Abram, right? They're making the decision on whether they want to sign Max Crosby and Hunter Renfro to long-term deals. They didn't draft these guys. No. Somebody else did. So that's been another issue is because they've been bad, it's normally that three- to five-year cycle for coaches or GMs before they get fired when you don't have any success. And because of that, you often don't get to draft somebody, and then you're the one that extends him unless you stick around for a while, and that just hasn't been the case. So that's another issue. Which And one little side note here. It's also a, another indicator of how bizarre and kind of amazing Derek Carr's career has been. He has been through so many GMs, so many head coaches that did not draft him, and every single one of them have come to the Raiders and said, we want to keep that guy. Like, he, like that's it. Nobody else has gotten that far, where they just have that much turnover with this organization, and they stick around, except Derek Carr. Yeah. And honestly, it doesn't, it doesn't happen very much in the NFL, I guess. Stafford kind of went through a similar thing in Detroit, but every every coach and GM has walked in and said, we we want that guy. We want to keep Derek Carr, despite there being almost no success for this team. I'm not surprised in terms of, because again, we talked about quarterbacks in the past, and if he's a top 10, 12 quarterback, it's always the, what's your other option? And if they have a top 10 or 12 quarterback, I think there's some kind of comfort in that. Um, whether they like him or not, and we're, we're still not sure about McDaniels and Ziegler given the contract they signed it to him and they have a one-year out. But yeah. for the immediacy of it, it what, what is your other option beside him? And that's Baker why I think Mayfield. they gave him the one. Yeah, well, Baker Mayfield. That's why they gave him the one-year <laughs> one deal, and that's what it is. People hate when we say that. It's really a one-year deal. But I'm not surprised when you walk in, and if he is a top 10 or 12 quarterback, most people want him at least for the short term because the question always becomes if it's not him, then who it is. Um, Baker Mayfield, Malik Willis, uh, maybe yeah. they could swing a tra- They could have traded for Drew Locke at some point in this. And oh. He was available. They should have done that. Um, so, on the idea of signing draft picks to a second contract, Hunter Renfro next. Hunter Renfro is going to be next. Okay. You Are you confident because of Derek Carr's tweet? <laughs> no, I'm just confident because I think Hunter Renfro is next. And I think he's good enough. But okay. I did like the tweet. Yeah, somebody tweeted at Derek Carr about uh, the Raiders going and getting Debo Samuel. And Derek Carr responded saying, no, that money is for Renfro, uh, which would imply that Derek Carr uh, is expecting Hunter Renfro to be signed and would imply that Derek Carr and his whole, I took a team-friendly deal, 
was to keep Hunter Renfro around and get Hunter Renfro paid. Uh, did you take anything from Dave Ziegler who kind of didn't answer the question? It, let's, I'll read it here. Like I said before, when we talked about it, I think it was with Derek at the owner's meeting relative to contracts and things like that. We're always going to keep those things in-house and keep those discussions private. Hunter's going to be no different in that regard, but we're excited that he's on the team. We love good receivers, and you know he's one of them. Did he say anything about Renfro? Um, I think the key there is any... Hunter is going to be no different in that regard, meaning okay. they're going to work on a contract. They're working on a contract with him. Uh, does Hunter Renfro somehow get a one-year deal with <laughs> Team Oscars? I think he probably gets more more guaranteed. I think it's <laughs> I don't know if it's Max Crosby. I think he gets more guaranteed than Derek Carr did he in might. terms of a $5 million raise. Ooh. In terms of a $5 million raise, I'm talking about guaranteed money. I don't know how much he's going to make a year. But so, guaranteed life of the contract. Okay, hold on, hold on. How much do we think Hunter Renfro gets in a contract extension? Does he get 15 14? Million? I was going to say 14. Okay. 14 a so year? So if, if he gets 14 million, could he get... So Derek Carr right now only has 24 million guaranteed. If Renfro yes. gets two years fully guaranteed on his deal, he'll have more guaranteed yeah, money than, than Derek, Derek Carr. Carr. <laughs> I'm, I mean, are you going to be surprised at that? I'm not going to be surprised at that because I think in their positions, in their specific positions, I think they might be more sure about Hunter Renfro than Derek Carr. Yes, I I think that is a yes, that is an accurate position uh, statement that they you they are more confident Hunter Renfro is at a his good, spot. Yeah, is a good yes. slot receiver than yes. they are that Derek Carr is the quarterback that can lead them to a Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah I I think that's a hundred percent true. So that's actually going to be fun if he gets more guaranteed money than Derek Carr that that'd be that'll be great um so yeah so Hunter Renfro I assume it's next I assume it's coming we talked about the whole June 1st thing with some June 1st cuts and potentially that helps them with some more money uh but uh that would be what the seventh of 68 players that they will have signed to a second contract after drafting them which is uh better than six of 68 but got over 10 that is an amazing number yeah it's Boy, bad. how bad have the drafts been, it's or bad. how bad have they developed? It's it's or maybe it's both. Yeah, and the the other part is there's only been one first round pick they've done it with, and that's Colton Miller. Yeah, like that's that's incredible that they've only had one first round pick. And you know, we talk about fifth year options aren't a second contract. We talk about fifth year options, and if they pick any of those up with Farrell, Abram, and and uh, and Jacobs, Jacobs, are any of those guys even getting are getting second contracts? Probably not, right? No, I don't even so, know if they're getting picked up. Yeah, I mean, I don't that's think three, two more, three more first-round picks alone that the Raiders won't be signing to a second contract, which is just It's a great story by Paul. I had no idea the yeah. number was that. Yeah. Coming up next, John Von Tobel joins the show. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. You can hear him over on VSIN on the edge. John Von Tobel joining us now. All right. I have an important question because I feel like it's been this way for a couple of years in a row now. When did the NBA playoffs just become whoever is the healthiest is going to win the title? Dude, yeah, I know, right? It kind of stinks because it kind of ruins everything in terms of the matches we've been looking for. But I will say, I mean, there's teams that can overcome it, right? We have one team that's without their best player. It's got a 2-1 series lead, and that's the Dallas Mavericks, and they're taking advantage of the absolute nightmare that are the Utah Jazz. So it can be done, but it does seem like recently, over the last few years, it's just been kind of this thing of attrition where it's like you just got to get through healthy, and uh, maybe we need to tweak some things. Which injury is going to cost the favorite the series? 
Um, I think you're probably going to go more toward Phoenix than you would Milwaukee, mainly because of what we've seen, right? Like, you know, I was actually, I just finished writing about this for Milwaukee. Like, even with the Middleton injury, like, there's still these really big positives for Milwaukee in the series. You know, the transition defense has been great. Offensive rating of 129.2. They should have been able to do that, you know, in this series against Chicago. They've been able to do it. Uh, the rim defense for Chicago wasn't going to be a strength coming into this series. Bucks are shooting 75% on 45 attempts at the rim through two games. Uh, you know, even without Middleton on the floor, they were able to kind of carve their way back into that deficit. It's just that Mike Budenholzer was doing his usual thing of being stubborn with his drop coverage. And even with Giannis at the five, who is like the most switchable dude in the world, he's still dropping them off on these pick and rolls and allowing them to do what they do. It was more like mistakes that were killing the Bucks. So I think they'll be able to overcome Middleton. As opposed to the Suns, where Devin Booker is obviously a very big piece for them, you're relying on guys like Cam Johnson, who I think can do a really good job of picking up the slack in terms of scoring. But you've had a really big problem with this small lineup that the Pelicans are rolling out there. Larry Nance Jr. at center has been a nightmare for Phoenix to contain through two games now. Trey Murphy playing power forward is only 6'8". So the Pelicans, who used this giant lineup to get to the postseason, now all of a sudden have downsized, and they become like uber-athletic, and they're moving the ball around, they're running up and down the floor, and it's been giving the Phoenix Suns problems. So I think if you're ordering them, you're probably going to put Phoenix at the top of the absence of Devin Booker. Can Milwaukee beat Boston if they don't have Middleton? Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. And Middleton's been like a Boston killer in his career in the postseason. He's been really good against Boston. But, you know, it's funny, Tyler, like I was actually, I said this the other day on our show uh, on Beeson, which was, you know, I'm watching the Bucks like play that stubborn drop coverage, you know, play with the inability to stop mid-range scores and all these things. And I'm like, like Boston's carving that up. But, you know, to Jason Tatum, if you're going to drop off on pick and rolls and allow him to do that, or if he's going to kick it out to an Al Horford who can space, I think even better than Nikola Vucevic can, uh, that's going to be a really big problem for the Milwaukee Bucks. So they've got some real questions to ask themselves about how they're going to handle these possessions defensively as they move forward, if they do move forward, uh, in a series like that. Because if you're allowing Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan to step into mid-range jumpers and they're killing you, what's going to happen when that all of a sudden becomes Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown if you could move past this series? So I don't think – I. I've become more confident in Boston the more I watch them in this series against Brooklyn without Robert Williams. And now as you kind of move forward here, like you, you definitely think they match up a lot better with Milwaukee given that Milwaukee's been kind of eh on defense lately. Is the Boston series over? Uh, I don't think it's over. I, I wouldn't say that. What's the cliche? It doesn't start until a road team, a road team wins. Um, <laughs> so I, I, can roll, I can go that direction. But I also just think, like, look, when you have those two guys out there, like it is going to be a challenge. And, yes, they took care of business, but they were also down by, what, 17 in that game for a reason against the Brooklyn Nets. I just wonder, Ed, like my whole thing with Brooklyn, because I have a series bet on Boston, and my whole thing with Brooklyn was when you look at Kevin Durant and the minutes that he's had to play, at what point does this start to catch up with him? And lo and behold, what happens in game two? He goes to a 10 in the second half. He's playing 42 minutes a game. It's this workload that he has been going, I think he's averaging 39.2 minutes since he's come back from injury for the Brooklyn Nets. He's just had so much on his shoulders, and now you're taking on Boston, who's getting physical with him. Who Every time there's a screen, they're coming up into his jersey and saying, you know what, shoot, you can shoot over us, that's fine, but you're going to feel us. And it's really, I think, worn down. Now, on the other end, you get Kyrie Irving, who he was incredible in game one, but I think you saw in game two, Hey, it's kind of hard to play NBA basketball when you're fasting all day, and it kind of gets a little taxing playing against the physical defense like the Boston Celtics. So I think they kind of have their physical limitations at this point. I still think that this is you – know, I picked it in seven, so I'll stick there. Uh, but it's definitely um, – I think this is going to be like a 1-1 series going back to Brooklyn, and they have looked really good so far, Boston. 
Does Ben Simmons add anything of significance if he plays in game four, which would be the, for the first time in basically a year? Like, does he do enough to change anything in this series? I mean, I, I guess defensively he does, right, to a certain extent, because, like, you, you can at least just ask him, hey, man, like, you know, just go play defense. We're just going to we're gonna bring you out here. You're going to play defense. We're going to have you cover Tatum or Brown, and we're going to have you run up and down the floor in transition and make some nice passes on offense. But, like, you would have to think it's not going to be, like, a massive workload, right? Maybe, what, 20, 25 minutes in a game? Uh, coming off of the bench, I think, is what they said as well uh, in terms of the role that was expected for him. So even if he comes out and plays somewhere well, he's not coming out giving you 35, 40 minutes and you know, all-star level defense or all-defense level defense. So, like, it makes a small difference, but I just don't really see that, especially if what happens if they lose in game three because it's reportedly game four that he's coming back. So now he comes back in a potential elimination setting. Like, I just don't get the, the, the benefit that it would be for the Brooklyn Nets. Now, if they win game three, it's 2-1. He comes back, and he can play pretty good defense for 25 minutes. Then you're, Maybe you're cooking with something, but I, I don't think it's anything like crazy that he gives them in terms of an upgrade. Okay, we asked this uh, earlier before you came on. Um, how in the world did the Warriors get a third third person like Curry and Thompson? <laughs> I mean, I know he averaged 18 points, but this guy's just, he, like Tyler said, they're running the same thing for those other two dudes, and he's making shots. Hey, did you guys see, on, it was getting passed around on Twitter yesterday, uh, a CBS Sports HQ uh, analyst the year that Jordan Poole was drafted. It was like a 90-second rant about how it might be the worst pick of the draft. You have no idea what he's doing. Like, it's, <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, but you're right. Like, And I think the Warriors do deserve some credit, not like for drafting and seeing it in them, but they're a really good player development uh, team. I mean, we've seen this now for a really long time, that the Warriors kind of know what they're doing when it comes to uh, drafting guys, developing them, getting the most out of them, making sure that they are the best version of themselves. You know, Andrew Wiggins has come over and been a very good role player for them. You can go down the list of guys who, who they have taken either in terms of late rounds or undrafted. Uh, uh, Draymond Green, right, arguably their best player. Um, defensively, I should put that way. Uh, they, they do really good with this, and Jordan Poole's incredible. Like he deserves credit for just his skill set. He's awesome. The play at the end of the game yesterday, where he catches it wide open in the corner, and instead of taking that shot, he drives in and finishes that ridiculous layup uh, that ultimately you know helped them get the edge in that game. Like you said, he can shoot from every area of the floor in just like them. Quick release, uh, it's incredible. And those small ball lineups are freaking awesome. And yeah, I don't know about you guys, but like I'm watching it like. You're getting goosebumps because it's just like those old Warriors yeah. teams. You're right. Like, it's just the same thing over and over again. They're just moving the ball. It's like six passes, boom, all of a sudden, the layup and the basket. Like, they look really good, and they deserve a lot of credit all the way around for what they've been able to do. Are they winning the title if Jordan Poole keeps playing like this? Oh, uh, I mean, I look, so I, I still, I still want to think that Phoenix is the best team in the Western Conference, but I will say, because it ties into what we're talking about here, if a small ball lineup with Larry Nance Jr. at center is giving you all the trouble in the world right now, and it's only two games, so we'll see what happens, right? Monty Williams is a really good coach, and we'll see if they can adjust. But if, if that kind of a lineup is giving you problems now, what happens if you carve your way to the Western Conference Finals, which, by the way, we don't know if that's a given, because if you're facing Luka Doncic and the Mavericks in the second round, that's going to be a tough series. But let's say you make it to the Western Conference Finals. What are you doing with the Draymond Green at the five, Jordan Poole, Clay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, and Steph Curry lineup, right? Like, that's going to be a really big problem for them. So I still have uh, a lean there toward Phoenix, but the more I watch that lineup work together, and we'll see what happens tonight for Phoenix, the more I watch them struggle against smaller lineups like that, uh, the more I kind of think like, uh, you know, we might see Golden State making it back to the NBA Finals for the first time in a while. Seems like the Joker has to play every minute of the game for them to be in it or ahead. 
Um, it's yeah, it's crazy, and, and, and like the the asinine conversation around him, and like, oh, look at this, this is your MVP. This is like it to watch with just two eyes and to see what he has to do on a possession to possession basis just to keep his team in it. It is absolutely nuts. Their defense is so bad, and you know, part of it is him as well. But if you just look around the court and guys are getting free lanes to the basket, uh, they have no idea what they're doing in terms of rotations and switching and all these things. There's constant miscommunication. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And then from an offensive standpoint, like you finally got Aaron Gordon to wake up for 16 and 10 yesterday. But the two games prior to that, you're talking about eight points and seven points and under 30% shooting. It's just, it's just such a slog for Jokic. And like you said, I mean, he could have 45 and 20, and they're probably still right. losing that game by a bucket. Right. Uh, who gets more unjustified criticism, Jokic or Rudy Gobert? Oh, don't give me like those two. That, <laughs> those are my two pet peeves. I don't. I, it's, you can understand how upset I am about this. So, like when you watch yesterday, the, the possession in the end of that game where Spencer Dinwiddie has the ball and Donovan Mitchell just kind of like thrusts his hips at him and allows him to blow by him and finish within four feet. <laughs> And they go back to it on consecutive possessions, and they get a layup out of it each time. And yet we see on social media, oh, they're playing Gobert off the floor. Like, no, they're not. They're destroying Donovan Mitchell and these other guys who can't guard anything in front of them. And it's been the problem for the Utah Jazz for a long time. Last year against the Clippers, the Clippers averaged 28 catch-and-shoot three-point attempts per game, and they shot over 50%. On, actually, it might have been 48%. And in this series so far, the Mavericks have more uncontested three-point attempts than the Jazz have three-point attempts. Like, it's crazy what they've been able to do to them. And it, but it's not Rudy Gobert's fault. They have nobody who can guard on the perimeter, and thus Rudy Gobert's putting out fires, but for some reason we're watching this and going, ah, they're, they're playing them off the court. you got to get them out of there. Terrible. Along with the final shot, what have you seen from Philly? Oh man, I like I Tyrese Maxey might be the, their second best yeah, player. Yeah, <laughs> that kid. And so I bet on him, guys, to win most improved player. I, I was astonished that he didn't make the final plus three. He's been incredible all year long. Um, but like, if that's if that's the format we're rolling with, if it's going to be Joel Embiid as like lead dog doing everything through him, Harden is more of a facilitator and third wheel, which is by the way I think what he kind of wanted to be in Brooklyn, uh, and then having Tyrese Maxey. One man fast break who could score and do all those sorts of things, move really quick. Uh, a decisive Tobias Harris who's actually performing in his, his role really well. Uh, they're a lot better than I expected them to be. But let's you know, let's see what happens when you move on and take on a Miami Heat team who can really slow you down and play tight in the half court and actually have a body to throw at Joel Embiid. Because while I thought Toronto would win that series, you know, I was expecting Scotty Barnes on the floor. I wasn't expecting a, uh, a sick and hampered Gary Trent Jr. So I was clearly wrong there, but. I'm really curious to see how they react in the best of seven against a physical half-court type team like Miami. Well, he is John Von Tolbe. You can follow him on Twitter at MeJVT. John, as always, we appreciate it. Awesome stuff, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. So, John Von Tobel well, on in. the NBA. Yeah, it's man. pretty good. Pretty good. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm telling you, it's the, the NBA. We got we to gotta list out here. How many teams are missing a starter due to injury right now? Are we, are we at half the NBA teams? We'll do that next. No, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you can make the case of, you know, bringing the on-base into play that it's, you know, questionable anyway. It was it was close. Just being down that spot, you know, felt like that was the matchup we wanted there and, you know, obviously understanding the moment in time. So, you know, yeah, a little more gut-wrenching than usual. You know, you didn't expect that reaction from the crowd. This kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, certainly understand that. And, uh, 
you don't don't necessarily like being in that position, but that's part of it. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff. Ed, did you see any Yankees Tigers yesterday? <laughs> Come on. What, you don't have three screens on your what, wall? No, you, no, I did doing? not see any Yankees Tigers on. So uh Miguel Cabrera's got 2,999 hits. Right? I heard One about away. this. I did not yep. see it. I heard about this. One away from 3,000. He uh, was 0 for yesterday in the bottom of the eighth inning. And the Tigers had the bases loaded with nobody out. And Miguel Cabrera was on deck. The guy in front of him managed to hit it right back to the pitcher into a double play home to first. So that means there were two outs, runners on second and third. The Tigers had Miguel Cabrera up with a lefty behind him in the order, and the Yankees had a lefty on the mound. So what did the Yankees do? They intentionally walked Miguel Cabrera so their lefty pitcher could face the lefty hitter, and the crowd in Detroit booed the Yankees louder than I think I've heard anyone (laughs) booed for an intentional walk ever because they just want to see the guy get to 3,000 Well, and especially if you're this there, it's your one game for the week. Right, and then the the best part is, I don't even know who it was, uh, Austin Meadows came up behind Miguel Cabrera, and he got a blue pit that scored two runs. Like, it worked out very well for the Tigers. They end up scoring two runs off of it. The Tiger fans continued to boo despite scoring two runs because all they wanted to see <laughs> was, was 3, Miguel 000. Cabrera get a 3,000 pit. It was a great that moment. Awesome. They, like, Miguel Cabrera, after the inning ended, had to was walking off telling the fans to stop booing, pointing at the scoreboard, saying, We're up three nothing now. We're up three nothing. <laughs> like they were booing because they took the lead because they did not care about that. All they wanted was Miguel Cabrera to get to Fantastic. the Fantastic. That's a great moment. So I I think I did this correctly in the break. Um these are the teams in the NBA playoffs right now that are missing a starter due to injury. Phoenix is without Devin Booker. Dallas is without Luka Doncic. Denver is without Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. Michael Porter Jr., yeah. And the Pelicans are without Zion. I think we still count that one because it is an injury. Uh, That's the West. In the East, Boston is without Robert Williams. Milwaukee is now without Chris Middleton. Toronto is without Scotty Barnes. Chicago is without Lonzo Ball. And Brooklyn is without Ben Simmons. Granted, they kind of brought that on themselves. They traded for him. But that is uh, nine teams of the 16 that have a starter or starter-level player that is out because of injury right now. And then, honestly, like, Golden State, Steph Curry's playing, but Steph Curry's coming off the bench. Why? Because he had an injury at the end of the season. John Morant missed time at the end of the season. He's playing, granted, playing full minutes, but, like, the majority of teams in the NBA playoffs have not not just an injury. They have an injury to a key player that is shaping the way these series stinks. are being are playing out. Yeah, it absolutely it sucks. Stinks. I mean, you know, I love teams, the star players. Yeah, the two teams that played in the finals last year. Yeah, they're Devin Booker and Chris Middleton were probably maybe the most important player on each team. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know aside from Giannis, like, and both of them are hurt right Middleton now. Middleton was and, huge in that yeah. finals. And both of them might miss the rest of this series, next series. Who knows how long until they get back? It's a it's a disaster for the NBA in terms of a you know having your star players on the court in the postseason. This sucks. I was uh I didn't know about Lonzo Ball. I forgot about Lonzo Ball. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's maybe maybe it's the least significant of all these injuries, but it's still. I mean, 
does Chicago have a better chance if they have Lonzo Ball? Yeah, does it make yeah, a big difference? Yeah, probably Maybe. not. Yeah, but it's still, I mean, you've got a six seed who's playing without one of their best players. And it's, yeah, it's it's just, I don't know. It's the reality. I don't know. Is there, we heard so much about load management. Yeah. And the general idea was in the NBA, a lot of teams at the top that are legitimate title contenders, they're going to make the playoffs pretty much no matter what, even if their best player plays 50 games instead of 75. But we and we've seen a lot of load management. You know, Kawhi Leonard's the, the king of it, but he's hurt at the moment too. Like, what's the answer for the NBA? How like how well, they're you... trying to cut down on it? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Silver wants to cut down on load management. Look, yet look at all these guys are hurt. You want them to play even more? Yeah, I just I don't know what the answer is because it's like, is it just been a fluke couple of years? Because this happened in the bubble some, and it happened last year too. Is it just a fluke three year run or? Is there going to be a legitimate problem where guys just are breaking down trying to play 80 regular season games and then get through the postseason too? I think the latter. And it's funny, like I said, Silver was, uh, what, Dan Patrick uh, last week talking about load management and how they're now they're trying to do in-season tournaments and they're worried about load management with their stars. Uh, it kind of goes against the grain of playing 80 games. Adam, we want the good players in the postseason, not the regular season. <laughs>